few weeks, um, is going to be looking at it from a much more practical point of view. So I hope between us we'll give you a balanced thing. We will take questions together at the end, and we will try and be good about keeping to time. Um, I put that... Oh, the last picture, please. Sorry. It's, uh, it's kind of... I put that picture up. It's actually an ambulance I, I saw in a, a back garden somewhere up in the Lake District in Coniston. And I, I put that picture up because uh, I like it. <laughs> but also because it seems to me it, it tells you something about, if you like, the, the fallacy of thinking about humanity in purely materialistic terms. Without people to keep that ambulance going, it's dead. And without the personhood aspects of what we do, um, both in the church and in medicine, um, there's really nothing going for it. You can't really um, get away, I don't think, with a totally reductionist kind of secular approach to life. A lot of people try, but um, as my good friend Mike Bush uh, discovered, eventually... uh, it will come and grab you. Yes, we, we go, go forward two slides now. <laughs> That's just me. Uh, now, just to show that we're not, uh, we're not new um, in this area, well, well before Christianity, Plato, I think he came before Christianity anyhow, said this, if the head and body are to be well, you must first begin by curing the soul. That is the first thing. The great error of our day (laughs) is that physicians separate the soul and the body when they treat the body and it it seems to be something that's very um, embedded if you like in our culture that body, mind and soul are all sort of separate things and yet we're not we're all single people Um, uh, and they all very much interact in the way we we live our lives Uh, so I think that's a good starting point if you like a pre-Christian view but a very important view and it's interesting that I used to teach medical students quite a lot and one of the things I was always uh, going on about was the relational aspect of medicine Um, the second bit is the clinical evidence base you know we've got to have good rigorous scientific medicine and I, I would very strongly endorse that and teach that but unless you can form a relationship with somebody you can't help them. Unless, particularly working in the mental health field, you can establish a relationship of trust so that people can open up to you and tell, the, t- tell you what's on their mind, you really can't get on. If we can have the next slide, please. One, one of the problems that we face in, uh, in our current society and particularly that poor nurse that got uh, into trouble for offering to pray with a patient, is what I call rampant secularism. Uh, And just to remind you that actually, um, if you look at the different faith traditions throughout the world, there's a lot more believers than there are unbelievers. Uh, Christianity still has the biggest number. Um, uh, How many people that count themselves as Christian are thoroughly committed as Christians, I don't know, but I'm sure you could apply that to all the other faith groups as well. But if you look at the religious and spiritual, they are 4.7 billion against less than 1 billion of the secular. So I do think we have, if you like, a right uh, to to be heard. And we have a right also when we're working with our patients as a doctor or um, 
So we have a right to, to have that spiritual point of view taken into account. I don't think I have any right to, to, to run my own particular spiritual point of view down anybody's throat. I hope they'll find it attractive. But I don't, uh, I don't subscribe to the view that it's wrong uh, to talk about religious and spiritual things in the context of the health service. This next slide, if I could have it, please, isn't really intended so much for this audience because I give a, a, a slightly modified version of this talk in other contexts. But, you know, there's this terrible belief which is around at the moment that spirituality is unscientific. Um, uh, and Paxman, in a program he's been doing on the, on the BBC about evolution, seemed to, to sort of think that science has disproved religion. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. That, that I, I hope I'm a decent scientist, and I hope, I, as far as is within my power, that I'm a decent uh, Christian person as well. And there have been many great scientists who have been profoundly spiritual. Um, people like Newton, Einstein, uh, although the secularists say, well, Einstein wasn't really being spiritual. He was just kind of using spiritual words. He didn't really mean it. Um, when he said some very profound and flattering things about Gandhi, for example, who's one of my heroes and a great spiritual leader who uh, refused to identify himself as belonging to any particular faith group. So I don't think we think that uh, spirituality is is unscientific. It's experience-based and it's often profoundly important for ourselves and for our patients if we're talking about patients and if we're talking about clients or co-workers in the church or whatever it's important for them as well and the other thing which is the the main burden of this part of the talk is that actually if we look at the next bit on i said the relationship bit's important but also the scientific evidence is important if we look at the scientific evidence the scientific evidence is pretty good that religion is good for you uh, so if we have the next slide please uh, and oh dear something's happened when this has been trans transmuted between one set of designs and another set of designs but basically what we're referring to here is a a very nice editorial in an official journal of the Royal College of Psychiatrists called the Psychiatric Bulletin in 2008 uh, by a gentleman called Koenig who's an American psychiatrist and I've got several of his books here he wrote a book about aging and God and, and various other things But he's made a lot of scientific study in these areas. Uh, And what he's basically said uh, in this editorial he did in June 2008 was that there were nearly 724, to be precise, uh, studies in the journals about religion and mental health prior to 2000. And since the year 2000, there have been another 3,000 studies. And he did a detailed analysis of the earlier studies, and nearly two-thirds of them reported statistically significant positive links between religious involvement and mental health. And the later studies have tended to confirm that as well. Um, If I have the next slide, please. Some of the the sort of key findings, those for whom religion was important were less likely to be depressed in later life. These are particularly related to later life because that's my own special area of interest. They were less likely to be anxious and really hard evidence. Doctors like really hard evidence. Over a six-year period, older people who do not 
engage in what is described as private religious activity, but by which is generally meant prayer, have an increased risk of death with a hazard ratio of 1.6. So if you're an old person and you don't pray, you're 1.6 times more likely to die over that period. So that's an interesting thought, isn't it? (laughs) What should we do about it? Um, We have the next slide, please. Well, I thought when I prepared this talk that it was going to be a much smaller seminar context and this was going to be your opportunity to tell us what what you thought you should do about it, but you're not going to get that opportunity. You might at the questions at the end. Um, But what should we do about it? Uh, Of course, it depends on our role. Uh, And I think for health professionals, and I I speak mainly as a health professional, um, we need to respect and support the beliefs of the people we're working with. I do understand why some of the rampant secularists are frightened of us thrusting our Christianity down people's unwilling throats. However, they don't seem to be quite so reserved about thrusting their secularism down people's unwilling throats. Um, We should respect and support people's beliefs. Sometimes that means respecting and being neutral. Sometimes it means respecting and challenging, but it always means respecting. Sometimes it means respecting and being alongside. And as a psychiatrist over the years, uh, I can remember working with patients <coughs> where I felt it was right, because they were coming themselves from a spiritual, religious background, to disclose to them that I shared some of their beliefs. And I thought that was really quite important. And certainly one lady I worked with who, who was a Pentecostal Christian was very happy to know that I didn't think she was mad. Um, just because she was a Pentecostal Christian. She had her mental health problems, but being a Pentecostal Christian wasn't one of them. Um, (laughs) So that was nice. Praying with patients, I put a lot of question marks after it. I've never done it, actually. um, I've often prayed when I've been with a patient internally, but I've never actually offered to pray with somebody. That's partly probably my cultural background and, and how I've been brought up and so on. And perhaps if I was carrying on longer as a doctor and with movements like the mind and soul movement I might feel more in a position to offer to do that but I think that always has to be done in a very careful way and has to be done I think on the basis of of a shared faith which is perhaps and I'm not criticizing the nurse who offered to pray with the patient perhaps where she went wrong was that she offered to pray with somebody without perhaps knowing enough about their own um, spirituality and attitude to spirituality. And certainly as health professionals, consultation and co-working with people from faith communities is very important. I haven't put with clergy because I'm a Quaker and we don't have any clergy or pastors and things like that. We'll, we sort of do it yourself, which is, can, can be quite trying, but uh, <laughs> that's how we do it anyhow. Um, so working with people from different faith communities. It's interesting, of course, uh, when I'm talking about being a Quaker briefly, just to say that the retreat hospital at York is a Quaker foundation, and that was one of the first uh, enlightened mental health hospitals in the country, and it's still going. It is, a, it is a, a charitable hospital in the private sector, but it's still going. If I can have the next slide, please. I don't know whether you'll get these uh, slides sent round to you. I hope you, you will, because I've put a bibliography on there of some of the books that I've not been able, and, and, and articles that I've not really been able to, to demonstrate to you. I'm going to go on very quickly now to the second part of the talk, which is specifically about dementia. Uh, and if we can have the next slide, please. 
that's nothing to do with dementia. That's just another one of my favourite slides, just to remind me. Um, I, I call that... Uh, I don't know if any of you read Teilhard de Chardin, who's a Roman Catholic theologian who wasn't allowed to publish in his lifetime, but he, he talked about the omega point, and that, that's my omega point, my idea that we're always travelling towards something, towards God. Um, if I can to the next slide, please. I'm going to just say a little bit now about dementia. Uh, and I have to say... Immediately, one of the interesting things I've found about being a Quaker, because I haven't been a Quaker all my life, is the two Quaker meetings that I have attended uh, on a sort of very regular basis, both have had a member of the congregation with dementia who has come in and sat in silence through the whole half hour, three quarter an hour of a Quaker meeting, which any of you who have been to a Quaker meeting knows is, is a, quite a, a, um, an interesting phenomenon uh, because people just stand up and speak if they feel moved to do so. So... It's interesting that those people with dementia have been integrated into the Quaker meetings that I've gone to. What is dementia? Well, I'm not going to read out the definition. You can read it out for yourself. Um, There are different kinds of dementia. If we have the next slide, please. Uh, The most common one is Alzheimer's disease, AD. Something's gone wrong with the colour sliding, colour coding here, but AD is about 65% of dementia. And then there are lots of other ones at one side, and there's vascular dementia at the other side. You don't need to worry too much about that, but I just wanted to to, to make the distinction that not all dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Um, If we have the next slide, please. This is how I teach uh, medical students and others to make the distinction between different forms of dementia. It's not very clever. It's just looking at the time course of the illness. Normal old people don't show much cognitive decline. Um, As I'm 60 myself, I have to be careful about what I say, but I don't think we show much cognitive decline. Uh, And certainly my mother, who's 87, isn't showing much yet, so that's good. But people with Alzheimer's disease show this gradual downward progression in loss of cognitive function. People with the vascular form of dementia usually show a kind of stepwise deterioration. Uh, And people with delirium, which is an important differential diagnosis for the doctor, become suddenly confused in the context of a physical illness and will recover if their physical illness is treated. Next slide, please. Alzheimer's disease is an interesting uh, thing because it really does go to the point that body and uh, mind are inseparable. Um, People with Alzheimer's disease have distinct lesions in the brain. I'm not going to go into those uh, at the moment. In fact, if we can just skip through the next slide, and I'll put up the further read. That's right, further reading acknowledgements. Uh, well, I just read you an extract from an excellent book that anybody who works with people with dementia should get: a guide to the spiritual dimension of care for people with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia, which has a more snappy title, which I think should be the, the main title, but is a subtitle: "More Than Body, Brain, and Death," and it's by Eileen Shamey who was a Methodist minister in New Zealand who had a pioneering ministry with people with dementia. I'm going to read you one extract from her book. I was hoping to read two, but time is passing. Uh, And this is um, Eileen Shamey's mother suffered from dementia, uh, and she gives an example here of, of the kind of deprivation that can happen to people with dementia. After looking after her mother for a long time, she had to reluctantly put her into an old people's care home, and she writes... As an example of the deprivation this can cause, I think of my mother, 
who had always been a talented needlewoman and craftsperson. Her hands were never idle. When she went into a care home because she needed 24-hour care, she was still crocheting. She crocheted squares for Afghan quilts, and her work even then was some of the most perfectly executed that I have seen. She took pleasure in the colours, arranging them harmoniously and crocheting the squares together. That she found the work satisfying was obvious. It seemed to me that the fact that her hands were always busy was the reason she seldom wandered or showed any impatience with being confined to the house or garden. One weekend, when it happened that I was not well enough to visit, she dropped her hook and could not find it. All that day, on and off, I was told afterwards, she picked up her work and asked for her crochet hook. No one thought it important to look for it, and the weekend staff did not know that she had a spare hook in her room. She still had her work basket in the lounge on Monday when I visited again. Immediately I noticed her still hands. I picked up the partly completed quilt and she began to cry. Why was she crying? A passing regular staff person remarked, She hasn't crocheted all day. Weekend staff told us she was very agitated most of Saturday and Sunday. The cook said that she had lost her crochet hook. I went to fetch the spare hook from her room and placed it in her hands. She looked bewildered, so I took it and crocheted a few stitches. I told her that she was much, much better at this than I was, but when I placed the hook in her hand, she held it awkwardly and poked it aimlessly, not even connecting it to the wall. Silently, she put it down and folded her hands. She never picked it up again. It was a kind of dying, and I grieved for her loss. Why had none of the weekday staff thought to fetch her spare hook? If I had been well enough to visit her that weekend, would she still have been crocheting? If she had dropped her soup spoon, someone most certainly would have replaced that for her. I was right to grieve. She remained sad and restless and her little hands stiffened without the exercise. Worse, another resource for nourishing her spiritual well-being was lost to her. Her last remaining creative skill, her opportunity to make something useful, which had helped to give her life meaning and purpose, was gone. And those who were her caregivers did not recognize the extent of her loss. And I read that story because, to me, it's a beautiful example of, of, of how spiritual care is actually intensely practical. Um, there is um, a website uh, run by the Christian Council on Aging, which you can Google, and in the resources section there, there is something uh, which was produced by the Dementia Group uh, of the Christian Counseling on Aging, uh, of a spiritual care plan, which is intended to help uh, nurses and people looking after people to look after the spiritual needs of people with dementia but looking after the spiritual needs is to do with looking after them as a person one of the things that Eileen Shamish stresses and I think it's one of the most beautiful theological points she makes is that when people with dementia become severely demented they may lose their identity but they never lose their personhood because their personhood is given them from God Christine. 
Hello. Great day. Are you all okay? I speak um, from my heart. I'm not able to. I actually had a 13-piece PowerPoint, all zippy and zappy up there for you. But um, throughout the day, I thought, you know what? You just need to hear what's on my heart. You need to know what I do rather than what I think about. So, splendor and age-inspiring ministry. Why is it age-inspiring? For myself, I've cared for older people most of my working life. I started off as a nurse and saw many situations I wasn't able to help him. I'll give you a little example of something that for me began to break my heart. One of my first days on the ward that I was working, as I was walking down the ward, it was a Nightingale ward, I could see an older lady at the end of the ward. She'd fallen over and her frail body was curled up. And towering over her was a person in a uniform shouting at her, not giving her words of encouragement, but shouting at her about how to get off the floor. For those of you that know me, you know I'm a very passionate and expressive person, so my face didn't evade the horror I was thinking on the day. And as my jaw dropped to the floor at the, at the horror of this, I was told, it's okay, this is how we need to teach people so that when they go home, they know how to get off the floor in case they fall over. If I'd intervened, I was told, I would actually be putting that person at risk. <clears throat> I can see that today as vividly as I can see your faces here. And that's perhaps something that I'm carrying with me. Not emotionally now, but in a way that I am actually able to start placing those concerns into practical acts of kindness with older people. I wasn't in in a nursing career very long before I began to manage residential homes for this great city that you're in. This is my church. I'm very fortunate to be in this church. I love this church. I love the people that come here, and I just love everything there is about it. Working for Bradford Social Services was at times for me incredibly difficult as a Christian. I've heard today expressions of how do you, how do you cope as a Christian and still conform to policy? How do you cope as a Christian and how do you not pray with someone? And you know, for me, I spent 28 years trying to unravel the bureaucracy, trying to change something for older people in a, in a practical way. But for me, it was like papering over a crack. For 28 years, I was papering over a crack. I had the same passion I've got now for older people. The same passion was to care, to see the standards of care improved, to to see the dignity, to see the love, to see everything that a person should be able to remain regardless of age, be within them. But as a social worker, as a home manager, I wasn't able to do that. I could do it for the people within my care and I prided myself in running a great home. It was just down the road here. But in order for me to make a change, I needed to step out of that and step into something that God gave me, something that's just amazing 
And out of that came splendor and age-inspiring ministry. There's two elements to splendor. One is a team that's able to serve older people in a relevant way. But on the other side, it's a ministry which encourages older people to come along and serve. It's quite unique in that we have older people serving older people. For those of you that are not sure in here what society classes as old, I think it's 50. I'm 50 this year. I don't consider myself an older person, and yet I'm, I'm a champion for older people, so how do I work that one out? I don't know. Maybe I need counselling. But you know, the fact is, there's always somebody older than somebody else. So when we say older, it's no big deal. It's a number. It's an age. I've got a joke. You've got to tell a joke, you know, within these things. A psychologist newly qualified was asked to speak to a group of pensioners or a group of retired older people, as it was expressed. So he goes along, and for 45 minutes, he speaks at. Not to, not, but at. And for 45 minutes, these older people sit gracefully, nodding at all the right spots, smiling, And at the end, he stood there very pleased with his probably 13-piece PowerPoint that he'd prepared. And um, an 85-year-old lady came up to him and said, "Um, young man, very eloquent, well punctuated, very expressive, but something you need to know as you're growing older, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Please don't come forward today and say that to me. Not because I profess to know it all, I don't. You know, I'm teachable. I remain teachable. If I don't remain teachable, then how am I able to help the people that I'm here to care for? And and one of the loves of being able to head up a wonderful ministry like Splendor is that I get to speak to people that are wiser, have been around longer, have have had a, you know, I know somebody, 78 years he's been married for, 94 years he's been a Christian, and probably 80 of those he's been preaching. And I get to sit alongside people like that and really be part of their life, and I'm inspired by them. That's why Splendor's an age-inspiring ministry. I want to be able to inspire people to care for older people in a way they deserve. In our society, older people are downcast. In our churches, older people are downcast. You know, as you come into our church on a Sunday here, this is full. We have three meetings, and it's a full church. And most people will say, where are all the young people? But here it's, where are all the old people? Because it's such a young church. However, you know, we do have a lot of older people, but they don't all sit in the same place. We don't sit people in wheelchairs all clumped together. We give people the dignity and respect that they deserve and say, if you'd like us to reserve you a seat because that'll cater for your disability or your special need, then we can do that. Otherwise, come along and be part of us. We have older people here serving in differing ministries, not just in Splendor, Um, but in Splendor, I think the average age of the people that belong to it must be about 84. 
So I'm quite a young chick, even though I'm supposed to be getting older now that I'm supposed to be nearly 50. So when we look at that, when we look at the statistics of, 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 of how we view aging, it can, it can really put us off. It can put us thinking, well, I don't want to be part of Splendor because I don't want to be known that I'm old. But at the same time, I really want to be useful. How many of us in here that are in ministry or are still working or are involved in things, how many can you, of you can contemplate not actually doing what you're doing now? Who tells us we should retire? Where in the Bible does it say we're supposed to retire? It doesn't. And I feel that unless we begin to start to change and influence the way people view older people, we're not going to be able to change what we need to change. And I urge you in here, I urge you to consider what your life is going to look like in the next season of your life, where possibly you can't hide behind your identity of your job. You can't hide behind your identity of being a mother but it's where you are actually standing on your own two feet as a person. And that, and that takes a lot of doing for some people. But if you plan and prepare for it now, it's going to be much easier. I'm just going to have a drink. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. I'd like to just share with you some testimony of some of the, the older people that we've been able to support and help. Do you know... Um, if we look at the slide, the next slide, we'll see what Splendor does. Quite a lot when you look at that. When I was sat doing that, I was thinking, wow. One of my team members thought Splendor was an afternoon tea party on a Thursday. And it wasn't until they became involved that they recognized and realized just how much we do for older people, not just in church, but in the community and around the city. Word and worship is a vital, vital part to us being able to take our church into residential and nursing homes. On my travels within the residential homes within the city centre of Bradford, I see differing standards of care. And for me, being a previous care manager, I sometimes struggle with that. I struggle with the fact that I can see that people in a vulnerable situation are not being cared for as they should. But if I go in every time and police it, and if I go in every time and point at everything they're doing wrong, the door's going to shut. So we go in in love. We carry love I've got Jesus inside of me. That's what people see. That's what people need to see. They don't need to hear me. I could quote legislation and laws and legalities and, and you know, and enable people to jump through loops all day long. But where would it get us? The older people wouldn't hear or be able to worship. And we wouldn't be able to have the credibility around the city that we do. Presence in a community is really needed. It's needed to redress what's happening in society. And word and worship is a way that we not only get to see the older people enjoying worship. You know, it's great. It's wonderful. I'll give you an an example of what it's like. One of the first homes that we went into was a home around this area. And as we walked in, it was quite an oppressive situation situation. 
very dark. I'm not sure how many of you have ever been in a residential home, worked in one. Some of what I may say now may shock you, but it needs to be said. You need to be shocked. And um, these people were sat in a very dark, smelly environment. Their heads were down. They weren't sat up like you are. They weren't able to engage with each other. They were not guided into the room. They were pulled into the room where we were about to have a service. And it was just a mixture of, of oppression. It was really hard. And for me, I was struggling. I was really struggling with how can I bring a word and worship to this group of people? How are they going to understand what benefit? And I was really battling, you know. Um, but we had a young band and the young band set up the drums and the guitars. And the older people were like beginning to lift up their heads. You know, in Isaiah, lift up your heads and look all around. And, and just the hustle and bustle of them setting up actually created a stir with these older people that they were awakening. They were, they were thinking, what's going on? And then to be hit with really loud music was like, whoo, they could do nothing but focus. But you know, it was wonderful to see a group of older people go from not being able to even look at each other, you know, to, to be looking at the floor and dribbling and not be aware of the surroundings, to be up and clapping and dancing in the seats. And whilst that was happening, I just knew that the word God had given me, I needed to be able to express. And that day in that home, eight older people chose to give their life to Jesus. If I'd not done that, if I'd been afraid of what people might say, if I'd been so egotistic to believe that it was my words that they needed to hear anyway and they, were, they weren't going to be useful, then I was, I was doing the wrong thing. And that taught me a very great lesson that day. That taught me, number one, that I knew it wasn't about me, but it really confirmed it's nothing about me. I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel that's God, that God's used to pour into in order for me to be able to express. I'm a passionate vessel. I'm not the normal type of person that you perhaps see um, visiting an older person in hospital, you know. I, I'm very much a passionate person. And, and with the integration with older people, um, we try and make it lively and, and, and relevant not old and staid, because that's not, what's, that's, not what, ooh, that's not what's needed. So as we look at the other areas, Thursdays is a group that we regularly run here. On a Sunday, we bring people in from the homes and hospitals and sheltered housing complexes from around Bradford, which is great. We've heard about dementia today. And, you know, bringing people with dementia into an environment like this can be very challenging in itself. And I can think of one occasion where we had a group of people sat over in the corner, all suffering with dementia of varying types. And the team that were there with them, um, many a time had to sit with them so that they didn't actually stand up and try and move around the auditorium. Not in a controlling way, but just in a way that, number one, wouldn't disturb everybody, and number two, that they could benefit from. And sometimes, you know, the team had to turn the chair around and face that person to engage in worship. And I was engaging in worship at the end of the row. And um, 
We've heard about how it can be the congregation sometimes that put you off. Somebody from within the congregation jumped in front of me and I was away in worship, worshipping, but I felt this presence. Do you know they all smell is what she said. I was like, Vroom. yes, I do. But do you know what? Love them anyway. And that's what we need to do. We need to not be concerned within our churches that we're going to be bringing older people in that, yes, they may smell. Yes, they may talk to the pastor when he's speaking at the front. Yes, they may yawn. Yes, they'll probably fall asleep. But do you know what? If we don't bring them, who's going to do? Who, who, who says that, you know, because you're older and you're frailer and you're no longer able to keep control of your bladder, that you shouldn't be able to be here in a church? Who says that? We, we shouldn't allow that. We should encourage everybody. We're an all-inclusive church. Let's be inclusive. When we open ourselves up to say we are including, we're bringing hope for the hopeless. We're going to love the unlovable. That's what God does. God, God, so when I said, yeah, I want to do this for older people, you know, some of the older people that God put in my presence five years ago, other people would say, how on earth, in fact, somebody did, how do you care? How do you, do you know what? I don't see that person. I see what God sees. I see the person inside. I see the spirit inside that person dying because nobody's saying, it's okay. Come on, worship. And the most wonderful thing is a person with dementia giving the life to Jesus. And it happens here. It happens regularly. And who are we to question? Who are we to deprive people of that? So it's not just important that I take word and worship out. It's important that we enable people to come in. However, sometimes main church isn't always appropriate are always beneficial for a lot of older people. Hence the Thursday group. Thursdays is an opportunity for people to come along and fellowship in a way that they choose to. I'm fortunate that I've got a car. I've got some fantastic friends. I can go out for coffee. I can go visit them. What happens to older people when they can no longer drive or they're in a residential home or they've got nobody that is willing to come and pick them up What happens to their opportunities to fellowship? So we need to create these. We need to create it more so within our churches. This book is called Could It Be Dementia? And I'd really recommend that you read it. You know, for those professionals in here that can do all the quoting that I can't do, (laughs) um, I do feel you'll learn something from this book. It gives a very basic understanding of what it's like to care for somebody who may be older, but not necessarily older, um, and suffering with dementia. Louise Morse is a renowned journalist. She worked for the BBC, and she came out two years ago to see what we were doing in Splendour. Number one, because she'd heard that we were actually including older people, and one of the studies that she was researching at the time was suggesting that churches are casting out older people to the sidelines and no longer including them. But she, she, wrote, she came along and she wrote an article. We're in here, Splendor's mentioned in here. And she wrote an article to, to speak about how we do include and how we do treat them with value, dignity and respect. I'd like to read you something from the book that she's written about. 
Contrary to common belief, in later years, Christians need more spiritual support than at any time in their lives. Even those who have been faith leaders or missionaries. For old age is a time of loss. Loss of physical and mental ability. And of trust even in one's own judgment. Research shows that people with a faith who regularly attend a place of worship, tend to live longer than the peers. I mean, how about that for going out and saying, come and be a Christian, you're going to live longer. That's got to be worth one. I really think it is. So when we read that in the book, when we read about Louise, and she's, she goes on to explain lots of testimony about how Um, churches are are not open to seeing older people or people with dementia or people with mental health problems or a disability. And and she explains it in a very easy to understand and basic way. Splendor also um, provides all of those things that we can see in the circle there. But we also, you can see Abel underneath, have recently started something called Abel, and it is spelt correctly up there. I've not got my grammar wrong on this. It's from the Bible, the name Abel, not, not the action. And Abel is about enabling people with any disability to be able to enjoy church life. So whether that be hidden or physical disability, we're able to provide support in many ways. And perhaps this is one of the ways that we're able to say to people, do you know it's okay to come along and it's okay to be you and you don't need to explain yourself, but it'd be really good if we know how we can help you because then you can have a great church experience. For those of you that are in here that run churches, that run that run. Um, missions out to people, consider this, consider giving the choice that people need. I always say that a choice is only a choice if it's a choice of the things you require. Um, When I used to do care plans for older people, you know, if I was saying to someone, would you like an apple, banana, a pear, but they actually said, no, I'd like a blackberry and I haven't got one in my bag, then I'm not giving them any choice. And that's one of the things with Splendor, we give people choice. We enable them to think about what they'd like. We enable them to actually be listened to. We sit and pray with them. We sit and think about what they're wanting to speak about. We don't just say yes in a minute and walk off. When I used to train staff how to care for people, and it was this is working for social services. So anybody in here that knew me then, well, hey, it's gone, isn't it? So there we go. But I actually, I actually used to train in a really radical way because I'd, enab- I'd, I'd make people feel what other people felt. So I would ask them not to use their arms sat in a training session. I would ask them to ask to go to the toilet. Do you know what? Every staff member I trained never ever says to a member of staff, yeah, in a minute, to a resident, yeah, in a minute. Because going to a residential home and you're reliant on somebody to take you to the toilet and you say, could you go to the bathroom, please? Yeah, in a minute. Can I go to the bathroom, please? Yeah, in a minute. Till eventually you're so desperate and people, when you're training that way, actually consider because they're walking in that person's shoes. Joseph F. Newton said, got it up on here, I think, yeah? People are lonely because they build walls instead of bridges. Splendor 
doesn't just build a bridge, it builds relationship. And we pride ourselves on the relationship we build, not just with the older people, but the people providing care, the carers of the older people, the team in which we're working with, the staff that are um, uh, giving the care and support in the residential homes, and in the future, hopefully, the government. You know, I believe that the church led the way years ago, and we've, we've forgotten and gone to sleep. And I believe that as a church, we need, it's time we need to pick up that baton and say, actually, move out the way, here we come. Because we can provide in a, in a way that no longer public services is can be through costs, through time pressures, through bureaucracy. We can provide what's needed. Care plans are a great resource. I advocate them immensely within the caring profession. However, spiritual need needs to be more than just a tick box on that care plan. Anybody in here that's within, working within care plans, you know what I'm talking about. There's a tick box on there where you ask someone about spiritual need. And many a time I've worked with staff that really don't know what that means. So they're like, they just brush it off. For me, if I were in a care home and I wasn't having my spiritual needs catered for, I would die. And I don't want to die spiritually. And I don't want to be a bringer of that type of care provision. So for me, that's why I needed to step out and into splendor and into building relationship and into an entirely different way of caring and advocating care for older people. I'd like to show you a DVD. The DVD was made here for an event called Flourish, whereby we wanted to ask people what they considered growing old was about. We wanted to get an idea. But at the same time, I wanted to be able to use a DVD to be able to take out to groups, not seminars like this, but groups to say, what do you consider growing old is? And what I'd like you to do when you're watching it is... We interviewed members of the public just in the Bradford City Centre one Saturday who have no faith. And we also interviewed some of the older people that serve within the ministry and come along and join um, our Splendour Thursday group. So I'd like you to just watch this, please. age of 12, 13, I started to write my own music, write my own song. I think that's the wrong one. It's lovely, really, to be honest. I enjoy it. I enjoy the people around me. I really enjoy the young ones. I think the young ones are lovely, and I look at them and think, Yes, <laughs> the lovely. Yeah. Being healthy and well and fit and able still to serve. And all the young people around me watching them grow up in God. You get a free bus pass. <laughs> you don't have to pay on buses. <laughs> you finished working. No, I, can't, I can't say for the sun. Um, as getting older, you're more tolerant, 
and you learn by your mistakes. So when it comes to your grandchildren, you don't make the same mistakes with them as you did with your own children. Well, I think old age is an attitude of mind, really. And uh, you have to keep active and uh, do what you can for others. That serving, serving and uh, loving people, I, I just, um, Jesus is my life and uh, I want to be like him. I want to do with me what Jesus did. Don't look upon old age as, as something awful because it's wonderful growing older. If you, if you have a positive outlook in life, then there's nothing to be afraid of in growing old. You have to be thankful if you're well and strong, and I'm thankful for that. My mum always taught me never go to bed on an argument. Oh, no. In fact, we don't really argue. No. In fact, I don't think it's my fault that we don't argue. I think it's Jack's fault, because he, he won't argue. <laughs> no, we don't argue. And even, even at 77, you can still serve the church... You know, if you fit. Every day I say to God, thank you for that good pair of legs and I can get about. And thank you for the breath in my body that I'm able to get up and about and do things for others and for myself as well. To be able to swim like I already said, like going She swims faster well. than me. <laughs> yes, so, you know, we're enjoying life. Yeah. Like to the full of, though she's quite a bit younger than me, you know. I look after her as well. <laughs> She's my personal shopper. <laughs> look after yourself and look after your husband. <laughs> We've been married 52 years, so we don't do it Congratulations. Get out and enjoy yourselves as much as you can. And if you can get plenty, get it and get some for me. Come and run it in. <laughs> You know, there's no fear of when your time comes to die because you know we're going to heaven. So, you know, I've had a lovely life and I don't envy, I don't regret any of it. I've got a lovely family and I think young ones coming up now have all that to look forward to. It's, it's, you can be really happy when you're old, you don't have to be miserable because you're older. My mum's taught me such a lot and I don't always appreciate her in my world and I think I say to people for yourselves out there with perhaps aging family or people that you know of, you know, when you look at that, our older people are so precious, they're so valuable. We're all a child of God. We're no different because we're older. We're still need to be loved we still want to be needed and I ask you if you've got any 
any chance, opportunity, start speaking into people's lives, start changing it. We must, as a group of Christians and professionals, stand up for what's right. Stop allowing people to make you think that it's okay to grow old gracefully, whatever that may mean. The Bishop of Liverpool, nearly said Bishop of Bradford, the Bishop of Liverpool wrote an a really good entry, and I'm going to quickly read it to you. We do not esteem the elderly for the length of years and their wisdom. Rather, we sell ourselves creams and surgery to banish all signs of aging from our own bodies. This enslavement for youthfulness would be comical if it weren't for the seriousness of what faces our aging population. Special homes for the elderly are closing under the weight of regulation. No wonder no one wants to grow old. Few politicians seem to have grasped the gravity. There is little provision or support for the extended family. There is little incentive for the young to care for the old and to uphold the commandment to honor your father and mother. Those are very strong, wise words. You know, I'm no different to any one of you out there. I've led a great life and I'll continue to live a great life. But for me, my passion, the calling on my life is my very core, my very being. It's the first thing, it's the first thing in my life. And so for me, it's easy perhaps to say, yeah, I've got a passion, let's go on there and do it. But you know, in June, we're having a conference here called Cherish, where we'll encourage women from all over the world to come along and bring a present for an older person. And what we'll do with those probably 2,000 or more gifts is we'll distribute them across the country and into homes and residential establishments. And we'll be blessing people with a nice dressing gown, a pair of slippers. And it came to mind that Not everybody can do what I do, but anybody and everybody can contribute a little bit. And that's the same here. It's a smile, it's a word of kindness, it's a passing a book over, it's giving people the opportunity to listen. You know, our ability to reach out in different ways is our strength. We see so many people begin to find themselves when we give them the opportunity to speak, to have choice, to be listened to, but more importantly, to be loved, to be considered as a person. Depression in older people is often overlooked. We've heard today about holistic care. I've always tried to care holistically, but now more than ever, for me, the importance is to look after a person's mind, body and soul. Thank you. I think this is where we um, offer the floor to yourselves for questions that I hope we can answer. Yes, I must uh, first of all apologise for the, the way my talk was structured, but as I said, I thought it was going to be a relatively small workshop. So the original idea was to get people talking around the first bit and only use the second bit about dementia. And then when I discovered we'd got this great big sort of lecture theatre... You did great. uh, Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. (laughs) 
So I'm retired from doing the work that Christine does now. I used to spend my professional life working with old people. I don't do it so much now, although I do still have some involvement. Uh, I was saying I'm, I'm the only Quaker in our village who actually has experience preaching because I've not been a Quaker all my life. And, and so I, I do once or twice a year uh, churches together do things in the old people's uh, sheltered housing and I often give, give the message there. <laughs> so, anyhow, yes, questions, points from the floor. Oh, let's start Have over there. Some mic- microphones. Mic We're doing that, yes. Come on, Marilyn. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm actually a GP. Uh, what I wanted to ask you... A lot of people, when they get older, it's like their thought process changes, even actually people that have a faith. And I always find it quite difficult to reach them. They seem to become very resentful, bitter, and all the rest of it. It's so sad. What causes that? Well, it, I have to say, it's not, it's not particularly my experience that that's true. Um, I mean, working professionally, of course, uh, I used to work with a lot of old people who were depressed, and they often would get resentful and bitter and sad. Um, Working or or living and being a Quaker and going to my Quaker meeting, there are a lot of old people there who are not bitter and sad. Uh, Well, I say a lot. We don't have anything like your size of of meeting. It's it's quite sad, really. Um, I bring back George Fox, and maybe we'd get on a bit better. But... um, (laughs) You know, that's not my experience. And I wonder whether, perhaps in your work as a GP, you're seeing a selected group of old people, perhaps the ones who are maybe from the psychiatrist's perspective depressed, maybe the ones who, um, from the church perspective, from society's perspective, are being excluded. Mm. There is no doubt in my mind that there's been, despite the fact that most, most of our churches, with the exception of places like this, tend to be rather peopled by older people, there is no doubt in my mind that there are an awful lot of old people who have fallen out of or with their churches. Um, my own mother, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic. My own mother's a, a, a nominal Catholic. Uh, she's a very spiritual woman in her own way. But her contact with the Catholic Church is almost non-existent now. Mm. Um, uh, and the lovely, thriving little Catholic Church in our village is being closed because the bishop said it should be closed. And, you know, that, that, the, 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 the Catholics in the village have been in uproar about it. But there you go. So I think there are, there are, there are things that happen to all people. They do, if, if people don't make a special effort, they do get socially isolated. Mm. And I think that does... I, I actually see that from a, a, perhaps a different perspective very often in that um, when there's a saying by a great author and preacher that I love called John Maxwell, Dr. John Maxwell, that hurting people hurt people and they become, as you've explained, tetchy or, and and quite often it may be because their social networks depleted, the links that they used to make that they were able to refresh with have gone and so they get very inward looking and because, you know, we're, we're, we're all busy, we, we don't have time to look at that. But we find when we're bringing people to our groups that have perhaps presented in that way that you've said, they soften. They completely soften after a while being around positive people with positive choices being able to be made in their lives. 
I just, just another insight that suddenly came to me. I'm also trained as a life coach, believe it or not, because that's one of the things my wife made me do in preparation for retirement. So, so I would have <laughs> plenty nice. to do. Uh, and one of the kind of doctrines in life coaching is that people get tetchy and irritable when their needs are not being met. We have a lady over here who wanted to ask a question. <laughs> Where's the microphone? It's, been, <clears throat> it's coming. We've got a question down here as well from... From John. Over here, thanks. Thank you. Um, Christine, uh, I know that you um, bring in people here from uh, homes that people are staying in, I, I think houses as well as care homes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, <coughs> coming from Ireland, I, I don't know very many. Uh, churches that actually do that and when I came down to live down here I, I, I was amazed at the amount of people that were coming down and I'd never seen anything like it before and the changes in their lives yeah. seeing old people, I remember one baptism you had here, the average yeah, age was 72 right. and, <laughs> yeah. and um, I, I'm sure a lot of people here would like to do something similar to that do you, did you find uh, that old people in their own homes were willing to come down and did you find that care homes were willing to allow yourself and your team to have stewardship of the people in there to bring them to church or bring them to a day out or something? Yeah, we did. Um, the, way we, the way we approached that was um, very strategic. Uh, um, people need to comply with registration and inspection standards being a, a care home manager. And one of the standards within that is to enable people to receive spiritual um, or religious um, services, etc. So when I rang up and said, hey, it's Christian Chapman from the Abundant Life Church, we'd love to come and bring you a service. They weren't actually looking at, wow, yeah, people can worship and hear God. They were thinking, yeah, I can tick that off. That's really good. Yeah, come <laughs> as much as you want. And it actually improves their inspection standards. So for us, that was really easy, an easy way of being able to... I think to... this is what's meant by making friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, for, for people who were socially isolated, people coming from home, that was a little bit more tricky. However, we have a lot of outreach going on within this church. And as people were reaching out in various estates, they'd find people that were socially isolated and perhaps pass it on. But for people living alone... It was more of a question of them hearing about us through word of mouth, ringing up and saying, could you pick us up? And we'd say, yes, of course we can. Um, and so that's how we did it. And, you know, once, once they realized that we were these really nice people that wanted to love them and care for them, and, and we couldn't be the answer to everybody. We can't be. We can't possibly be that. But for any of you wanting to do that, it's just stepping out. You know, I find... I really don't have this massive plan. I'm a visionary. So the planning gets a little bit, you know, those that are visionary will understand that people have to pick it out of the air from me because I'll spiel it out. But for me, it was, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, there, do you? Spiel it out? No, anyway. For me, it was stepping out in faith, one step at a time, one life at a time. And as I stepped out, God moved before me. So don't be afraid of ringing up. Don't be afraid of including older people. It, you know, we should be a, a church with every age group. We shouldn't just be a church for one particular group. We're a family. That's what family is. 
Splendor has babies attending it. How cool is that? You know, we say it's age inspiring. Well, you know, you can be inspired at six months old, sat on an older lady's knee that just wants to sit, have a baby sat on the knee because they've not seen one for a long while. There's a question from a gentleman here. I actually uh, work in a care home and um, it has been burning on my heart for quite a while, um, um, spirituality of the elderly. And um, we've ha- I've taken residents out of our home uh, who, before they came home to our home, went to church and went to church regularly. And uh, we did that and uh, obviously then the church turned around well, we don't want them anymore because because they, they seem to um, don't know whether they can't cope with it or and that's um, what I want to know is how do you get across barriers like that? <laughs> do you really want the answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know? I can honestly say that um, we've got an amazingly empowering leadership here, um, Pastor Paul just loves older people and for him it was great Christine just get on and do it let's love love them um so how do I get around it I just move them out the way and said you know what these older people are here these people with special needs are here start to love them join the team come and come and make them tea come out on the bus with me empower them to perhaps be involved but don't let them change your thought I've 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 sometimes let people think Knocked me off course at times and I've thought, mm, perhaps, perhaps I didn't quite hear from God on that. And you know, people, people can really knock you off, off course. So if it's in your heart, go for it. Take my number. I'll be glad to give you, you know, lots of, not necessarily advice, but words of wisdom, the way we've done it, the way what's worked, what hasn't worked. If it's on your heart, do it. As a manager of a residential home, I was in a really dicey situation because I was bringing my residents to church. And I was going round my wings and saying, who'd like to come to church? And the staff who perhaps didn't want these older people coming to church were trying to cause a rumpus. She shouldn't be doing that. She shouldn't be saying that. She's bossing them. She's ruling them. She's Bible bashing them. And I used to hear that in one ear, but no, I'd have the burning desire. This is more important that I enable an older person to receive Jesus before they die than it is to, you know, I nearly did lose my job. I walked rather than lose my job because for me, that was, that was more important. And, you know, the, el- the oldest person that gave the life to Jesus within our ministry to date, I'm sure it won't be, is 100 years old. It's never too late. Thank you. There's a lady over here. And there's a lady, I can't see with you, I just see a yellow top over here. Sorry, I can't tell. You've got a smiley face, whoever you are. I noticed, uh, well, two things. One, that if you're going to be 50, don't worry, because 50 is the new 40. Oh, that's And good. 60 is the new 50, Great. so you're all right. There we go. I'm not worried, but thank you. <laughs> Secondly, I noticed your DVD was uh, all women you were interviewing. Yeah. What do you do with the men? 
Oh, do you know, um, we hide them in a corner, no, we don't. Um, there were all women. Thank you for pointing that out. They actually, there's a reason behind it. It was for a women's conference, so we purposely went for women. But we're in the process of making a new updated version um, with a different strand to it. I see a lot of abuse of older people um, within the city of Bradford, within caring institutions. And one of the things that we need people to understand is that not everybody's protected in a protected environment and that we need to start protecting our vulnerable older people, you know, preventing them from having to share razor blades. This goes on, people. Preventing them from being told they must go to bed at six o'clock at night preventing these places from not giving them breakfast because they've decided to have a lay-in or giving them a hamburger for Sunday lunch. And it goes on and on. Not got long enough here to explain it. And I don't know why I'm talking about that, but it's coming into what you were saying. So that's why it's, it's women, but there we go. You needed to hear that. Okay. <laughs> Wakefield, I want to know if there's a splendour at Wakefield. <laughs> no, but we can bring it to you, so there we go. And can I get a copy of that video? Um, I don't see why not. I'm sure we can burn that off for you today, yeah. But Thank if you. you come and speak to me afterwards and we can right. exchange telephone numbers. There'll be a splendour in every part of the UK and world eventually. <laughs> We're hoping to have a house this year um, in partnership with a charity called Green Pastures. And this is something very dear to our hearts. It's where we'll be able to bring socially isolated older people and enable them to live in a quality of life that, you know, God bestows on them. Is there another question? Well, we're over running there? over, but last question, I think, yes. <laughs> it's just, um, I'm in pastoral ministry and I do go out to residential homes. And particularly so at the moment, I've got quite a few elderly people with Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, one gentleman particularly is at the latter stages of Alzheimer's. Um, basically, he's in the fetal position and just breathing. Nah. Um, I'd just like to share with you that I took communion out to this gentleman last week. I did an own communion service with his son. And they've not had no responses from him for quite a while. Um, and we actually ministered communion. And we gave the gentleman communion, and he actually responded by being more peaceful. Oh, that's great. So, so awesome. I just, I mean, I struggle with going out to people that you don't actually get response from because of the mental state. But in actual fact, you might not get a response, but there's something happening there. Eileen Chamey's book is full of that, yeah. that sort of thing. I don't know. Have you read Eileen Chamey's book? No, I haven't. Well, I recommend it to you if you've got a ministry in that area because she, she talks about cueing people, you know, using music. She, she writes about one gentleman, I was going to read it out, but we didn't have time, uh, who she discovered loved flowers and nobody had been able to make contact with him, you know, and, oh. and, and the flowers made the contact. She'd actually got the flowers to give to somebody else, I think, originally, but <laughs> she gave them to him and she never went to see him again without the flowers. Um, there are lots of ways, uh, 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 and it's not really been my area because I've been involved more as a professional, but uh, 
I think people who do have that kind of ministry, there are lots and lots of ways. You've probably got more than I have. But I don't <laughs> always get a response, but it's not that feeds us, doesn't it? That feeds something in us, like we need to have a response, or it's great if we do, because it's confirmation. And um, I released myself from that probably about 18 months ago, because I need it to do, because if I was looking for a response, I would stop doing the responding. So um, I just step in faith, and, and, I'm, and I, I, you know just love on people it's very interesting actually a lot of it's to do with perception a lot of it is like the crisis management talk we had this morning it's about actually knowing enough about somebody to know the way into them so if you can find out a bit about their history and background yeah definitely we better stop now because we haven't got anybody keeping time for us but i think we're supposed to stop at 3 30 and it looks like 3 30 to me thank you very much everybody If, if anybody wants to speak afterwards i am here thank you